It's Christmas 1978, and you will believe a man can fly. Coming up on the rewatch, Superman the movie. Because of the wisdom and compassion of Jor-El, because he knew the human race had the capacity for goodness, he sent us his only son. His name is Kal-El. He will call himself Clark Kent. But the world will know him as Superman. This year, Superman brings you the gift of flight. Superman, the movie. Hey guys, Happy New Year and welcome to Random Rewatch. This is Mike. And tonight we are doing Superman the movie. 1978, Christmas time, this thing came out. This is the first big budget um, comic book movie. In fact, this was, at the time it was made, this was the most expensive movie ever made. Which is crazy that considering that they did that for a comic book movie. But as we're going to discuss, this movie is basically like three movies in one. I'm really excited to do this. I'm going to warn you though. I have about twice as many notes as I normally have in one of these, so this is probably going to be a pretty big episode, but it's a pretty big movie, so let's get going with it. So I said this was the first big-budget comic book movie. Obviously, there had been other films. Uh, there had been other Superman films. There were Superman serials in the 1940s. Um, there were Batman movies and Batman serials in the 1940s and in the 1950s. Obviously, there's the 66 Batman, which was really a television movie, but it was released theatrically. But that was hardly a big budget movie, if you've seen that. But in the early 1970s, this film started getting developed. Um, right around 1973, the Salkinds, uh, who are the producers, started putting this film together. They bought the rights from DC. DC wanted approval on the cast. They had a list of people that they were interested in playing uh, Superman, including Muhammad Ali. They were looking at Al Pacino, James Caan, Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Dustin Hoffman, all A-list stars, all these prime guys in the 1970s. You think about it today, like oh, Dustin Hoffman or Clint Eastwood, these guys are ancient. Yeah, but in 1973, they weren't. You know, these guys were pretty, pretty hot actors. So... As this thing went through development, they realized that it was going to wind up being two movies. Part of the reason for that is that who they brought on to to write this story was Mario Puzo, who had written The Godfather. And if you're familiar with those books and with that film, you can imagine how dense and how lengthy he was uh, with his script treatment. Puzo was paid $600,000 in the 1970s in order to do uh, the story for this film. His, his script treatment that he did wound up being 500 pages long. And just to give you some context, typically when you're talking about uh, a film, a Hollywood movie, you're looking at about a page a minute. So a typical two-hour movie will be about 120 pages or so. Puzo turned in 500 pages. So, obviously, right away, there was enough story in here for them to go into two movies, and what's better than one movie, two movie. Right away, there was the idea that this guy um, was going to split this into two movies. The Salkines wanted, they were initially they wanted Spielberg to do this. Jaws had just come out. He was kind of a hot hand, but he had other, he was already working on developing Close Encounters. They had um, another guy by the name of Guy Hamilton who they were looking to direct. He had done a bunch of Bond films. There were a lot of rewrites. They brought in, after Puzo turned in his script, they brought in David Newman and his wife Leslie. Uh, Newman worked a lot with uh, Robert Benton. Those guys had written uh, Bonnie and Clyde, What's Up Doc, and they came in and they did many, many rewrites on the script. There was a lot of going back and forth with this uh, on the story. So originally they were looking to film this thing in Italy. That was the plan. One of the early things that happened in this film, though, was that they they hired uh, Marlon Brando to play Jarrell. And 
that was a problem with Italy because Brando at the time, he had like an outstanding warrant or something in Italy. So that scratches the Italy plans. Now they move it to the United Kingdom and they're going to film it at Sheffield Studios on the Bond stage. Brando was paid $3.7 million and 11.75% of the gross in order to uh, to do this film, which wound up netting him about $19 million, figure about $31 million in today's money. So it was quite the payday for Brando, considering, in fact, that he had in his contract that he did not have to memorize any dialogue. So his dialogue was largely on cue cards, and in some cases was written on props. When he gave his uh, great speech to his son before sending him off to Earth, and we'll get to that later. The story has it is that that was written on the diaper. So by 1975-76, they decided that they were going to film these two movies, Superman and Superman 2. They were going to film them consecutively, back-to-back, basically as one project. And in 1976, they brought in Richard Donner to direct the films, both of them. Uh, Donner had done a couple of films, but he was pretty hot at the time. He was coming off The Omen in 1975, which was a huge hit, um, and they brought him in to do that. Donner would obviously go on to do the Lethal Weapon franchise was, was him. He would do Scrooge. He would do The Goonies. So he wound up having himself um, a really great career, although he would wind up getting fired before Superman 2 was completed. And Richard Lester would be bring, brought in to finish Superman 2. A lot of controversy in that. This was kind of the first instance of one of these uh, viral campaigns to release the original director's cut. You know, the Donner cut of the film was eventually released in 2006, um, which was pretty different from Richard Lester's version of the film, the theatrical version of the film. And, you know, so this would lead us down the road to things that would eventually wind up with being like, you know, Zack Snyder's Justice League, that type of thing. So now they're looking at, now it's, you know, 76, Donner's in, and they're looking at actors for, to, to play Superman. Um, over 200 actors were auditioned for this role. And some of these guys were, were big powerhouses. I mean, the studio... And DC, at this point, they're looking, they want Robert Redford for this. And Donner, you know, Donner's problem with Redford, well, let me let me just kind of go through the list, right? They're, they were looking at Rob, Robert Redford, that he was kind of the one that everybody was really pushing for. But they also, they had Patrick Swayze come in and read for it. They had Bruce Jenner come in and read for it. They had James Brolin, Josh Brolin's father, came in for it. Perry King, who was a television actor, at the time from a TV show, uh, Simon and Simon. James Kahn says that he was offered the role and turned it down. But the problem that Donner had with all of these people is that he wanted Superman to be an unknown actor, somebody that the masses did not know. Because he wanted the movie to focus on Superman. And his thought was, if you put Robert Redford in this movie as Superman, this becomes a Robert Redford movie. And he didn't want that. He wanted it to be a Superman movie. So, yes, he had to get the right actor, but he did not want the personality of the actor or the, the notoriety of the actor overshadowing the character of Superman. You know, so from his point of view, Redford's out, Brolin's out, you know, all these guys are out. Um, and like I said, they auditioned 200 actors, and they wound up with this serious unknown named Christopher Reeve. So Reeve had just graduated from Juilliard a couple years before. He had done um, one big play on Broadway, which uh, he had been cast by Catherine Hepburn. I think he did some soap opera work, but he was, I mean, you want to call it an unknown. He was, he was really an unknown. He, at the time, obviously, he did not fit the mold of what we would consider to be, you know, a superhero today. If you look at you know guys like Hemsworth or Chris Evans or Chris Pratt or Hugh Jackman, you know these guys, these guys they are a very specific body type, and they you know 
they work out like crazy and they eat, you know, four chickens a day and don't even look at bread and whatever. Christopher Reeve was a normal looking guy. He was fit. He was muscular. He's tall. He's obviously very strong. He's a good looking guy. But they were not looking for somebody super jacked like Henry Cavill would be later in Man of Steel. They were looking for somebody who was just fit and somewhat imposing for the time. He did put on, from what I understand, between his audition and the time they started filming, he did uh, put on about 40 pounds. He started working out with David Prouse, who is a British bodybuilder and who was the body actor for Darth Vader in the original three Star Wars movies. Apparently what had really put him over the top in terms of getting selected is he did a screen test with Margot Kidder, who had been hired at the time, and they filmed the apartment scene. That was the screen test. And Reeve knocked it out of the park, and they loved him, and they are like, once he said, you know, the... Hello, Miss Lane, and just presented himself a certain way. They were like, yeah, that's our Superman. That's the guy. And, you know, I think it was a great choice. He's a fantastic actor in this part. He's really good. He really sells it. He's really believable. And he draws the line between, like, kind of the goofiness of Clark Kent and the composure and confidence of Kal-El perfectly, beautifully. And in fact, one of what well, I think one of his great acting moments, and we'll talk about this a little later, is is that scene in the apartment where he comes back. You know, he comes back in after being Superman. He comes to the door as Clark Kent. We're going to talk about how that was done. And she's getting ready to go out on a date with him. And you see him. He's in his suit. He's dressed as Clark Kent. He's in his suit, but he takes off his glasses. And you see him stand up straighter and and this kind of confidence comes across him. And it's like he's going to tell her. But then at the last minute, he decides not to. And you see him just kind of withdraw back into Clark Kent. You know, he, he almost shrinks in, in his stature, puts the glasses back on, you know, gets that kind of goofy expression on his face. So that, that dichotomy between these two characters, I think, he pulls it off really, really well, and I will say probably better than Cavill did. Cavill, there wasn't a lot of difference between his his Kal-El and his Clark Kent. You know, Clark was not, you know, a mild-mannered reporter. He was pretty big guy and pretty imposing and pretty forceful. Clark in this movie is kind of really kind of the nebbish, goofy, clumsy kind of guy that really sets off the difference between him and Superman. So Reavers paid Reavers paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars for this film, which is a lot of money in nineteen seventy eight. There's no doubt about it. It's a very decent amount of money. Brando, as we said, was paid three point seven million. Hackman, for playing Lex Luthor, was paid two million dollars. Christopher Reeve, who plays Superman and Clark Kent in this film, was third billed. Over underneath these other two stars, under under you know top billing was uh, Marlon Brando. Number two on the call sheet is Gene Hackman. Number three on the call sheet is the actual lead character in the movie, Christopher Reeve. You know, as far as uh, locations, we already talked about that. The the set piece of the interior stuff was all done in England. The exterior stuff, New York sat in or stood in for Metropolis. And uh, Alberta, Canada stood in for Kansas in the Smallville sequences. The other big piece of this was uh, the music. Originally, uh, Jerry Goldsmith was hired to do this film, but he ran into a schedule conflict and it wound up uh, being John Williams. Uh, And the score in this is absolutely iconic. There's nobody who doesn't, I feel, there's nobody who does not know that Superman fanfare from the from this movie.
it's just it's just incredible. It's iconic, and even the other themes, you know, the 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 love theme, Lois's theme, you know, everything, ever, and even the the you know the transitional music and everything underneath all the action sequences. It's just a fantastic score. Let's get into the movie like proper. The thing that really strikes me about this is that this is really three movies. It's three separate stories that are all kind of woven and put together. And if you count Superman 2, it's actually five stories, basically. But in terms of this movie, it's just kind of three movies. It's three sections. You know, the first one is a kind of traditional 70s sci-fi movie. One that takes place on Krypton, or as Jarrell will put it, Krypton. Krypton. The second is kind of this traditional 1950s small town film that takes place in Smallville. And then there's the the superhero comedy adventure that takes place in the probably like second half, you know, the back half of the film. Uh, I don't think it's really evenly split into threes. It's probably like the first half of the film is the first two. The, the sci-fi section is pretty short. And, uh, you know, the part where we've actually had the reveal of Superman is obviously longer. The interesting part is, like, it's it's almost, what, 80 minutes or so into the movie before you see Christopher Reeve in the Superman costume. And at that point, it's only for a couple of seconds. And then it's another, what, 10 minutes or so before he actually gets into, like, doing Superman stuff. So, I mean, you're halfway into this movie before you get to Superman. And that's 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 pretty crazy, actually. So let's dive into it. Like that first, so you got that first section. You know, each one of these sections represents part of the journey that Clark makes. Kal-El makes, however you want to call it. We're going to call him Clark. Um, it, it represents part of the journey that Clark makes throughout the story, you know, the first one, he makes the journey from Krypton to Earth. In the second part of the story, he makes, you know, the journey from Smallville to the Fortress of Solitude. And then the third part of the journey is kind of like the traditional hero's journey from Metropolis into becoming a full-fledged worldwide hero. And they each one of those sections... You know, it kind of makes up the kind of makes up the monomyth. If you're familiar with Joseph Campbell and the monomyth, same thing in Star Wars. You know, you have these pieces of the hero's journey. You know, the call to action, the the initial reluctance, the acceptance of of who he is and what he's supposed to do, and settling into his role as the hero. This this story kind of maps out that as well. So you got that initial part, and 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 initially the very beginning of it is really not even part of this film it's part of superman 2 where you have jor-el basically acting as a prosecutor for general zod and also you know his co-conspirators ursa and nan and they're doing the whole you know anger between jor-el and and zod and zod trying to lure jor-el over to his side something that we're going to see to some degree repeated in man of steel along with, you know, Zod's declaration that, you know, you will bow down before me, you and your heirs. You know, we're going to see kind of the, the back end of that story in Superman 2. And then the imprisonment of the three of them in the Phantom Zone, which is really, honestly, it's pretty terrifying if you think about it. You know, the three of them get stuck in this 70s album cover for, you know, eternity if things go their way, and obviously things will wind up not going the way of the of the Kryptonians. But that's, you know, that's another movie. And then we move on from that. That's seemingly a self-contained story. And without having seen the second film, you really have no idea why that's even in this movie. That's how we start. And then we get off to the second part of the Krypton story, which is... Jor-El and his assertions that Krypton is doomed, that the planet will explode, that they need to evacuate the planet, the rejection of that idea by the council, and then Jor-El having his own plan 
to send his only son off to Earth to live there, and so that the Kryptons, the Kryptonians' culture may continue, and they're they're you know that's obviously expanded upon in Man of Steel, where you know there's this idea of the Codex, where Kal-el contains you know the the totality of the Kryptonian genetic code. That's something that's you know in the 1970s they weren't getting into that. Um, this is just mainly that he's going to be the last Kryptonian, which we, obviously he's not going to be. But and then you know there's this promise that he makes that neither I nor my wife will leave will attempt to leave the planet or will cause a panic, which is technically true because neither one of them is going to leave the planet. It's obviously it's going to be his son. And then you know as the planet is collapsing and right before the explosion, they launch the spacecraft. And off it goes. And one of the things that kind of goes by, but if you think about it, is that, you know, this journey is taking years. Kalel is is in this little tiny spacecraft for years as he travels to Earth, you know, across the 28 known galaxies. And you got to wonder what that does to somebody. Obviously, he seemed to be okay. He was in a pretty good mood when he got, I mean, I'd be in a pretty good mood getting out of that ship, too. That he was in a pretty good mood getting on the ship. I wonder what it is, the the requirement to have a naked Kryptonian baby, because they did the same thing in Smallville, and did they do? I think they did the same thing in Man of Steel. Um, but yeah, so he he makes it to Earth. Clark and Martha, I mean uh, Jonathan and Martha, can't find him. Decide that they're going to raise him on his own, and we are now into the Smallville section. I want to I want to contrast a couple of things though. The speech that Jarrell gives to his infant son as he's going off into space, you know, this idea of you will, you know, I will live my life through your eyes as you live your life through my eyes. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this and more, I. I bequeath you, my son. You will carry me inside you all the days of your life. You will make my strength your own. See my life through your eyes as your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father, father, the son. This is all I, all I can send you. This sets up a real, there's a, a very, I don't know, messianic motif to this thing. I mean, think about this, you know, Jorel calls him, uh, you know, obviously he refers to him as my only son. He also says that he will be the light to show the way to the humans then he's sent out into basically into obscurity out into the wilderness if you will i mean krypton is obviously a very developed culture a very developed civilization they have colonized multiple worlds they've they've explored 28 galaxies and even lara asks him like why earth they're primitive and he says you know that'll be an advantage to him he'll be so much more superior than they are and then he winds up on earth he winds up coming to Earth and being raised by a couple who are not his biological parents, a couple who did not have children of their own, who could not have children of their own. It's kind of an echo of the idea of the virgin birth. You know, I, I'm not saying that, that Martha was virgin, but what I'm saying is she was, you know, she was barren. She couldn't have children. Kalel comes to this couple and they are chosen, so to speak, to raise him in relative obscurity until the point where he is ready to reveal himself. And that is a very similar kind of motif to the story of Jesus. You know, Jesus is, God sends his only son to earth where he is, you know, basically placed with a couple 
I mean, yes, Mary delivered, carried him and delivered him, but Joseph is not his biological father, and he is raised by this couple in relative obscurity until the point where he is ready to reveal himself. So there's a lot of similarities there between the, the story of Jesus and the story that they are choosing to tell of Superman um, in this film. And then there's the whole the speech that Jonathan gives to Clark in really what is one of his like two or three scenes. I mean, Glenn Ford is so good in this movie and he's in it for so little time. I mean, there's basically the beginning scene where they find him. And then there's basically this scene where he's waiting for Clark as he you know, is coming home from school, calls him out on showing off and then no, gives him the speech. When you first came to us, we thought that people would come and take you away because when they found out, you know, the things you could do, and it worried us a lot. But then a man gets older and he thinks very differently and things get very clear. And there's one thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. I don't know whose reason, whatever the reason is, you know, maybe it's because... Uh, I don't know. But I do know one thing. It's not to score touchdowns. The speech where he's telling him that he has a purpose, he has a destiny, he has a reason for being, and he needs to understand that, and he needs to find out what there is. And I just want to, you know, point out, like, the really significant difference between this movie and Man of Steel, which will come later. But in both films Jonathan is intent on Clark hiding his nature but in this film it's because he feels that they don't know why Clark is here they don't know what Clark is here to do why he's been sent here and to reveal himself before he's ready to would be a detriment to whatever it is he's trying to accomplish whereas in Man of Steel, Jonathan's point of view is you do not reveal your, you do not reveal reveal yourself because because the world will fear you and the world will try to destroy you, and it's a very different viewpoint. It's a much more cynical viewpoint, you know. And granted, it's thirty four years later, the world changes a lot. And this is this is what that viewpoint is going to look like in 2012 versus what it looks like in 1978. Clark in this movie then proceeds to go on and and prove his father right by discovering what his purpose is and living to fulfill that. Whereas I think Clark in Man of Steel is more about proving his father wrong and saying, no, I don't have to hide. I have a reason to be out. I have a reason to be in the world and engage with the world, and I can do good out in the world, which I think, you know, that version of Jonathan Kent would have probably tried to rail against. You know, and there's also there's also the way the deaths of these two fathers is is very different. You know, Jonathan... You know, the heart attack comes on him and he grabs his arm and he realizes what's happening. And he's like, he says, oh, no, like, I'm not ready. I have, you know, it's almost this feeling of like, I'm not ready. I have more to do. I, you know, I have more to teach my son. This is not the time for this. Whereas Jonathan Kent in The Man of Steel, you know, that tornado's coming and he makes that firm decision like, no, I'm going to sacrifice myself to keep my son safe and to keep him protected. And it's a very, you know, it's a very different death. And the two Clarks react very differently to it. But it's the inciting incident, really, for both of them to push them onto the next step of their journeys to discover who they are and what they are. And that they're both drawn northward. They're both drawn to this place to where they're going to find out what their destiny is. You know, and so now we get on to the third part of the film where, you know, our guy arrives in Metropolis and gets a job at the Daily Planet where we meet Lois Lane and Lois 
is, you know, she is out there. And I got to say, I really, I love Margot Kidder's, Kidder's performance in this. And I, I'll say it, she's a better Lois Lane than Amy Adams is because she really sets herself up as this, I don't want to say the foil to Clark, but kind of the antithesis of Clark. And I think she is a much more focused, much more driven character than was portrayed in Man of Steel. Lois in Man of Steel is kind of, I don't know, she's kind of, she's kind of sad and mopey most of the time. And I don't know, she just doesn't come across this, this way that Margot Kidder chooses to perform. Interesting, uh, interesting story about Margot Kidder. So they were doing, I want to say it was the apartment, the balcony scene. Um, they're doing one of the early scenes that they were shooting. And she had lost her contact lenses or damaged the contact lens. And she couldn't wear her contact lenses. So Richard Donner was like, well, we're going to do the scene anyway. Just do it without them. You know, we'll direct you. And he found out that when she didn't have her contact lenses in, she had this kind of wide eye, like she had her eyes wide open and she was really trying to, to, to figure out what was happening. And she was paying very close attention to things. And he loved that performance so much. He's like, you're just going to act without your contacts for the rest of the movie. And that's, that's what they did. He wouldn't let her wear her contact lenses, which is why you've got this kind of openness, this wide-eyedness, which is weird because I used to wear contacts. And if I didn't have my contact lenses, then I'd be squinting all the time trying to see things. But Margot Kidder, for whatever reason, she just opened her eyes wide and was like very intent on connecting with whoever was in the room, probably because she couldn't see them. And, you know, that just worked towards her performance. And that, that kind of shows you, that's like one of those things that a director or an actor will see that can really inform a performance. And we get to, you know, so we get to see Lois, we get to see Clark, um, we get to meet, you know, Perry White, the great Jackie Cooper, who had been in a billion movies, um, had a very long and storied career, started out early on in uh, Little Rascals and Our Gang, and just had this great long career. And so a lot of people knew him going into this movie. You know, nobody knew Christopher Reeve. Maybe not a lot of people knew Margot Kidder. But, you know, Jackie Cooper was one of these, like, kind of comfortable people that people had seen in, in dozens and dozens of movies. And he's great in this movie. Um, he really does a fantastic job just kind of being Perry White. And then, obviously, you have, you know, that first big set piece with the helicopter where the helicopter's falling off the building. You've got Clark, you know, looking up, and then you're deciding that he's going to go into action. And I got to say... They were very kind of loose with the rules on how Clark gets into his Superman outfit. Like, is he he's wearing it under his suit? That's fine, you know, because you see him pull over. They do the gag in the phone booth, you know, with the little half phone booth that he, you know, that he kind of looks at because, you know, in old school he would change in a phone booth. And he goes into the revolving door and he's spinning around. I don't understand how that gets him to change, but it does. He can change in the revolving door, but then later in the movie, he just jumps off the building and his suit, his street clothes just disappear. And I don't know if we're really sure where they go. So there's kind of no hard and fast rules as to how he's getting changed and how he's getting into his, his Superman suit or what happens to his street clothes. So he gets the helicopter, they do the whole, you know, you've got me, who's got you gag. And we set up Lois's, you know, infatuation with Superman that will drive us forward uh, into this movie and into the next movie. And then you have the, you know, the infamous date balcony flying scene. I mean, say what you want about it, but Margot Kidder and Chris Reeve are great in this movie. Um, and they're great in the scene. This is a really good scene with them together. I really buy their chemistry. I really buy uh, the relationship that they have. The whole voiceover thing when they're flying, the can you read my mind, 
that's a little weird. Apparently, Margot Kidder wanted to sing it, and there was a kind of back and forth about, like, she wanted to, like, sing it on the, in the film, like, sing it to Superman, like, diegetically. I guess this is kind of a, a compromise as far as that goes, but it's, it's corny. It definitely is corny, but hey, you know what? It was 1978. They, they did corny things. What can you do? They have the scene where, you know, the, they come back. There's this really cool sequence. Um, it was amazing in 1978. This really cool sequence where they're talking. They're on the balcony. Which, by the way, Lois Lane must be, like, the highest paid reporter in New York. Because she's got this million dollar balcony. But that's, you know, I guess that's typical of the movies. You know, so where they're, they're talking on the balcony and then Superman flies off. And you hear a knock on the door and the camera pans and it's a wonder. It's all one shot. The camera pans and she goes to the door and opens the door and Clark is there in his suit. And this was, this was really a tricky shot for 1978. I mean, this was, this was really a crazy shot. And the way they did it was, it was rear, the balcony was rear projection. She was standing when she's out on the balcony she was standing in front of a big screen, basically, and they were projecting Superman and the city and the trees and everything were all projected. And that was pre-shot footage of him flying off. And then she just walked across her apartment where Christopher Reeve was waiting in his Clark costume to, to come in. There's a great moment in that scene where She's like off getting ready to go out because they're going out on a date. She gets, she's getting ready and he's by himself in the living room and she's talking off camera and you see him and he kind of, he transforms from Clark into Superman, takes off his glasses, seems like he grows a couple of inches, gets this confident look on his face and the smile and you think he's going to, you know, he says something like, you know. I have something to tell you, and you think he's going to be like, hey, I'm Superman. And then at the last second before she comes back in, you see him just withdraw into Clark again. And he, you know, he puts on the goofiness. And it's just a really great acting moment. And, you know, I don't know how many people could have pulled that off. Probably a lot of, but a lot of them. But it's so believable when Christopher Reed does it. If he didn't look the way he looked, if he didn't have the charisma that he had, it would be really difficult to pull moments like that off. The one thing that I thought um, was kind of interesting, though, is that he tells to her, he says, I never lie. It's kind of weird because this is a guy who spends his entire life, you know, basically in a hidden identity. His whole, the whole Clark Kent persona is a lie. And kind of a, it's an interesting play off the, his statement that he never lies. The other weird thing about, the other thing about, it's not weird, the other thing about Superman that's somewhat unique is, you know, so superheroes, especially in comics, superheroes have these secret identities. And, you know, the whole arc of, Marvel's arc of Civil War in the comic books was very different than it was in the films because the, the point of it in the comic books was that these superheroes, nobody knew who they were. You know, people did not know that I, Tony Stark was Iron Man. People did not know that Steve Rogers was Captain America because they, they kept their personas hidden. You know, people don't know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And in most of those stories, in most of those comics, the... The character superhero persona exists to protect the person who is living their true life out in public. So, you know, Bruce Wayne is Bruce Wayne in public and Batman protects Bruce Wayne from, you know, from being exposed. Iron Man protects Tony Stark, you know, that type of thing. Kind of the exceptions to this are Superman, where Clark Kent exists to protect Kal-El, not the other way around. Superman doesn't exist to protect Clark Kent. Clark Kent was created, is a created persona to protect Superman. 
Um, the only other thing, off, and I'm sure, you know, if you're listening, you, you may come up with a dozen of them, but the only other one that's really obvious to me is Donald Blake and Thor. Donald Blake is, is obviously a, you know, Thor is Thor, and Donald Blake is a, is a persona that is created in order to protect Thor or to hide Thor's identity. Um, but for the most part, superhero personas work the other way around. The person is who the person is, and their superhero persona exists to protect that that person. But of course now, I think we really need to jump into kind of the last piece of this movie, and that is the big boss, Lex Luthor. Of course, the great two-time Oscar winner, Gene Hackman, uh, at the point of this movie, he was a one-time Oscar winner. He had won Best Actor in 1971 for The French Connection. He would win another, uh, he would win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar in 1992 for Unforgiven. And it's it's hard to imagine, but sitting here on the cusp of 2014, or 2024, that it's been... 20 years since Gene Hackman has been in a movie. The last movie that he was in was Welcome to New- Welcome to Mooseport, which was released in February of 2004. 20 years since Gene Hackman has been in a movie. He's done some he's done some voiceover work. I think he's done a couple television commercial voiceovers. He's done some documentary narrations. You know, he's done he's done a couple of things. He was in an episode of Diners, Drive-In, and Dives. Imagine Gene Hackman doing uh, doing Triple D with Guy Fieri. Um, but yeah, basically he's just uh, riding his bike around New Mexico and writing books and just living his best life, I guess. And, you know, good for him. The man's 93 years old. He doesn't uh, He doesn't need to be doing anything. He's, you know, he's not William Shatner, who's 93 years old and is just keeps going and going and going. I saw, as a side, I saw William Shatner um, last month at the beginning of November. He did a he did an event in Tampa uh, where they showed the uh, they showed the Wrath of Khan and then on the big screen in, in the Strass Center. And then they had bill shatner come out and he spent an hour talking about you know his life and his career and basically anything he wanted to because he's bill shatner and he's 93 years old gene hackman's not even putting that much effort into his life he's just he's just enjoying his life so he gets two million dollars to do this movie he refuses to shave his head which is why we have a lex luther with hair up until the final scene of the movie where uh he let to put a skull cap on him for one scene you also have, as part of his gang, you have Ned Beatty, the great Ned Beatty, and Valerie Preen as uh, Miss Tessmacher. So, you know, it's really interesting the way they they introduce us to Lex. We don't we don't see him at first. We just it's one of those uh, you know '70s tropes where you just kind of see the hand and he's operating some controls. You hear his voice off screen, and uh, you know, you know that uh, Miss Tessmacher is in the room with him. She's talking to him. She's looking at him as he's watching Otis, played by Ned Beatty, coming down the the subway tunnel with the with the cops behind him. I mean, obviously, if you're a Superman fan, if you've watched um, any of the serials or you've seen comics, then uh, you know who's coming. Um, Actually, I think he was only in one serial. He, but he was mainly a he was mainly a comic book guy. But he was in one serial in the fifties. He wasn't in the TV show at all. He wasn't in the Adventures of Superman in the nineteen fifties. Obviously, he would show up in Smallville, Lois and Clark, those types of shows later on after this, after Superman is kind of brought into the mass media. But before that, he was mainly a comic book hero. But you know who he is, or comic book villain. But you know who he is, and you know what's coming. And I just, I absolutely love Gene Hackman's performance in this. He is so over the top, just chewing up scenery in every single scene that he's in. And he has that one scene 
that is my complete favorite where he is, you know, explaining his evil plan to Superman because he thinks he's he's got he's got one over on him. They've 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 found a piece of rock that's uh, that's kryptonite and he knows the kryptonite will destroy Superman and he's got that. So he's not worried about Superman. So he's going to explain his whole plan to Superman for our benefit and it is just absolutely diabolical and it is absolutely fantastic in the way that he does it. It occurs to me that a 500 megaton bomb planted at just the proper point would uh, would destroy most of California. Millions of innocent people would be killed. And the West Coast as we know it would fall into the sea. Bye-bye, California. <laughs> Hello, new West Coast, my West Coast. Costa del Ex, Lutherville, Marina del Ex, Otisburg. Otisburg? Where's this monster go She's got her own place. Maybe. Otisburg? It's a little bitty place. Otisburg? Okay, I just wipe it off. That's all. It's a little town. You're a dreamer, Lex Luthor. A sick, twisted dreamer. Your plan couldn't possibly work. I'll admit there were a few problems. Adjusting the precise trajectory of the missile. Finding the optimum stress point for the fault line itself. Which, by the way, is uh, target zero, right here. Ooh. And his, you know, constant interactions with Otis, with Ned Beatty's character, Otisburg, and, you know, N for nincompoop, you know, all those kind of nitwit, all those kind of things, you know. Otis, it's not that I don't trust you, but I don't trust you. Tell me what you did. It's... It's just, it's just great. The two of them are so great together, and I really, really love the way that Lex Luthor plays this. And it's kind of weird that he, you know, and I, I had said before that this, this section is like an action comedy, and that's what it is. I can imagine a world in which Gene Hackman plays a straight-down-the-line Lex Luthor, and it would be probably absolutely terrifying. His, you know, his second Oscar um, that he won for Unforgiven... You know, his character of Little Bill was a terrifying character. And I could see him, you know, going down those lines with Lex Luthor, and it would be amazing. But they chose to do this kind of fun version of, of Lex, and I think it works. And I know some people are kind of like, oh, that's not my Lex Luthor, but it's my Lex Luthor. I think he's great. I think it works. I love the, the, the back and forth between the three of them. He's great in the next picture. He's just he just really takes it on, goes a hundred percent, dials it up, and chews all the scenery that he possibly can, and it's he just does a really great job with it. And so obviously then you've got you know this end piece, this controversial kind of final act piece where the um, you know the the bombs go off, which and by the way, so in the movie. Lex says that he's hijacked two 500 megaton bombs. So there's no such thing as a 500 megaton bomb. The biggest one, I think, and I did a little research on this, the biggest one I think that has ever been detonated, ever been test-fired, is about 54 megatons. The largest one that's ever been designed is about 100 megatons, uh, which is the Tsar Bomba. The Russians, they never built it. A 500 megaton bomb would be absolutely devastating. A 500 megaton bomb dropped on Hackensack, New Jersey, would do quite a lovely job of leveling Manhattan. And initially, I kind of was like, well, that would be counterproductive because that's where they are. But they're not, right? They're not in, they're not in Manhattan. They're in Metropolis, which just looks a whole lot like Manhattan. And, you know, this film does not identify where Metropolis is. It's been in various places throughout the comic history kind of the most common one is that it's in Delaware on the Delaware Bay across across the bay from Gotham City which is in New Jersey but it's kind of one of those nondescript places we don't really know where it is so I'm assuming Lex and his company are quite safe in Metropolis from the Hackensack bomb and you have these effects which were you know in today's day and age when you're watching it in you know 4k or even on a Blu-ray, the effects of the earthquake and the flood and the dam 
yeah, they they look a little cheesy, but you kind of kind of you got to kind of go with it. And they look great in 1978. This was really kind of cutting edge edge stuff. You know, do they hold up 100%? No, they don't hold up 100%. But I think the charm of the movie and getting wrapped up in the emotional core of this movie allows you to kind of look beyond, you know, the obvious miniatures and and the obvious composited shots where, you know, Superman's flying in and you can just tell he's just been pasted in and uh, and is moving across the screen. But I do want to talk about the fact that they, even though they wind it back, they killed off Lois Lane in this movie. And if this is the first time that you're seeing this movie, especially, you know, in 1978, you're in a theater and you're watching this film, the fact that they kill off Lois Lane, that's a bold choice. It was really kind of devastating. Now, obviously, they go and to some controversy, they unwind it. Excuse the pun. You know, Superman flies up, spins the Earth backwards, time reverses itself. I'm not quite sure that's how space-time works. But it is what it is. He gets Lois back. It's kind of weird that he reverses time so that all this stuff goes back. But then when he gets to Lois, who has not been sunk into the ground, all of them still remember the earthquake. All of them still remember the flood and everything that had happened. So obviously, did the bombs go off? Was the earthquake still there? What happened to Hackensack? Well, that's right. He had pushed the missile off, so that never detonated. But still, it seems weird that he had rewound time to the point before Lois died, but yet Lois and Jimmy still remember the earthquake. I guess he only... Why didn't he rewind it back to before the missiles were launched? I don't know. So did the missiles actually land and he just fixed the earthquake, but Lois didn't die? Uh, That's kind of timey-wimey. I'm not really sure how all that works. But you know what? It's good enough. The other thing that I just want to kind of point out is that, you know, we pointed out some differences between this movie and Man of Steel. One of the other big differences, I think, in this movie is that Superman is immediately trusted by the public. You know, this guy shows up on that first thing and where the helicopter's falling and nobody's freaking out about him. Everybody's like, yay, Superman. And throughout the movie, like, he he instantly becomes a hero to the point where he delivers Lex and Otis into a prison without a trial, really. And it's just kind of like, here you go, Warden. Hold on to these guys. And the Warden's like, oh, you know, the world is safe thanks to you, Superman. It's very it's very nice. It's very homey. It's It's probably a good comic book ending for the time. Obviously, that kind of ending would not hold up today. People would be all over that about, like, you know, why he did that and why would the warden trust him? Why would people trust Superman? You'd wind up with more of people fearing him like you would see in Man of Steel or BVS. But it was a very different time. So and so I want to go back to where I saw this movie. And this was a uh, this was a Christmas movie. It's the 45th anniversary um, as I'm recording this, right around Christmas time, it's the 45th anniversary of this film. 1978, it was a Christmas movie. I think it came out December 15th or so. Movies had longer runs in those days. Uh, there were movies that would stay for five, six months in a movie theater if that movie was, was hitting and was was making money and people were going to see it. You know, we didn't have day-date releases. We didn't have this thing showing up on pay-per-view or on on a streamer in 60 days or 30 days. And people will go, I'm just going to, you know what? I'm just going to wait to see Blue Beetle when it gets on Max. You didn't have any of that. If you didn't see the movie in the theater, maybe in a couple of years you'd get to watch it on your cruddy TV. And that was really kind of it. Um, even back in 1978, home video wasn't even a thing at that point. So you couldn't even be like, oh, I'll just watch it next year or at Christmas time, next Christmas when it comes out on VHS. That even wasn't a thing. So these movies had a lot of legs in theaters and they would go out. 
I saw this movie on Christmas Day. I remember it very clearly. My family was on vacation. We were in California. I saw this movie on Christmas Day in San Diego in a movie theater with my family. And we had an absolute great time watching this movie and coming out of this movie. And then, as it was, I didn't see this movie again probably for a couple years. And that was probably on television. You know, I didn't see, like, a good version of this movie, well, probably until I just rewatched it last week. I think I've seen, I think I've seen it on TV. I probably saw it on cable. I've probably seen it in, in HD. You know, this was, this movie was, it was kind of on TV a lot. And then when HD became a thing, it, it showed up on TV a lot. But um, I, I don't think I've really sat down and watched this movie beginning to end probably in 20 years, if that. I mean, I I didn't remember a lot of it. I didn't remember that it started with the trial of, you know, Zod and the guy and his guys. I was like, did I put in the wrong one? Is this Superman 2? You know, so it was really, it was a great experience to sit down and watch this. If you haven't watched this movie or you haven't seen it in a long time, I would definitely suggest digging it up. It's on Max right now, digging it up and watching it. So how do, how do, how do the movie do? We always... Talk about that. This movie did great. It had a budget of $55 million, which, you know, in 1978, as I said, was the most expensive movie ever made. It wound up making uh, $300 million in the box office, so almost six times its budget. That's pretty good. Received um, a bunch of Oscar nominations, Best Editing, Best Score. It did win a special Oscar for visual effects. It was a special achievement in visual effects. It was not a competitive Oscar. It's currently holding a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert gave it a 4 out of 5. He wrote, quote, Superman is a pure delight, a wondrous combination of all the old-fashioned things we never really get tired of. Adventure and romance, heroes and villains, earth-shaking special effects, and you know what else? Wit. He was very happy with that. He... He had commented that the Krypton part of the movie was ponderous. Um, he did not like Brando's performance. He wrote, Brando was allegedly paid $3 million for his role, or judging by dialogue, $500,000 a cliche. So obviously he did not like that. Gene Siskel gave it a 3 out of 4, uh, called it a delightful mess. I kind of like that. Cheap, non-flying special effects. He's right, the flying is amazing. Everything else is, is kind of cheesy and done on the cheap. Generally, there was positive reviews uh, for the film, especially for Christopher Reeve, who would go on to have a, an unfortunately short but bright career, you know, until he was injured in the, uh, the horse accident, which happened in um, 1995. He uh, had a lot of health issues as a result of his injuries, and um, you know, just kind of deteriorated over time, and then in, I think in two thousand and four, he uh, he finally passed away, leaving behind uh, his wife Dana, who I knew, um, really nice lady, and three children. I think um, they lived in uh, upstate New York, well Westchester County, New York, in um, in Bedford. And I grew up in Stanford, which is the, the city in Connecticut right next to them. And I, I had some business dealings with Dana back in the back in the early 90s. And like I said, she was a really nice lady. So that's that's Superman. Um, wow, this ran really kind of long. And uh, I would definitely suggest that you, you get out there and you watch this movie if you haven't seen it in a while. It's going to be nostalgia for you if you haven't seen it since, you know, in a, in a bit. And it's going to be, I think, really something special if you've never seen it. And I have a hard time believing anybody listening to this has never seen it. But that's it. That's it for the year. And we will be kicking off next year very, very shortly. So thank you for listening. Have a happy new year. <laughs>